0: It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. We're living in very strange times in the summer of 2020, as as we discuss daily on this show. Uh, But some things uh, are consistent. For example, to make sense of our weird times, we have a, a new Bob Dylan album. Uh, rough and rowdy ways. And there's this wonderful song, My Own Version of You, in which Dylan speaks of the apocalypse, as he's been doing throughout his wonderful career. Um, I'm quoting my own version of you. Uh, I'll play every number that I can play. I'll see you maybe on judgment day. After midnight, if you still want to meet, I'll be at the Black Horse Tavern on Armageddon Street. Now, Bob, if you're listening or watching, (laughs) of course, you're more than welcome to come on. But as a substitute for Bob Dylan, similar sort of age and perhaps cultural background, uh, I have uh, the author of a really interesting new book, 10 Minutes to Midnight, another version of the Black Horse Tavern on Armageddon Street, Blair H. Shepherd, And uh, he writes in the book, uh the solution to the world's most urgent challenges are within reach but we only have 10 years blair armageddon street is it just around the corner
1: well it's 10 years it's 10 years although uh COVID might have accelerated a little bit but but we still have 10 years
0: well so but 10. for 10 years for you strategic guys your background is uh the uh, pri- price waterhouse cooper pwc yeah. so in your day job, you're a corporate guy. 10 years is not a long time.
1: Well, if you think about the significance of the issues we describe in the book, 10 years is a millisecond actually, because society just doesn't change that fast, right? And so we have to configure the answer, we have to begin executing, we're gonna be a large way to solving the problem in each of the cases. So yeah, 10 years is a, pretty, it's, it's a race, it's a serious race. We're, at, we're in Le Mans, I guess.
0: And uh, in the book, which is a short read, a a rather bracing read, you suggest, and this is part of the subtitle, that there are four urgent global crises, uh, which have come together. It's this perfect or imperfect storm. Uh, It's a storm that's really been brewing since the 1950s, and it comes out of 50 or 60 or even 70 years of global prosperity. So Blair, very briefly, uh, outline your historical narrative and then and and, and then uh, uh, clarify these four points, these four crises that have come together
1: yeah so, so if you think about the things that brought prosperity brought a billion and a half two billion people out of poverty, um, phenomenal GDP growth, it was really three things together the first and it, it, it emerged in the second world war where we came out of the war we needed rebuild so first is um, uh, focus on globalization with a shared model. The second one was a uh, belief that technology was just generally good. And the third, which is sort of the creation of simple measures of success. So GDP and shareholder value. Any one of those alone wasn't an issue. All three of them together created massive success for 70 years, but they worked together to create kind of a dark side that we have to emerge from. So so what happened in, in a way is is they they created some cracks. So let's think about the four cracks. One was uh, individuals are significantly less well-off than those who are wealthy. Certain regions, Northern England versus London, middle of the United States versus the coast. Um, and and that there are big intergenerational. So, so a kid uh, graduating in, in Australia won't ever be able to buy a house or, or in, in Shanghai. the the price of a house is 40 times median income. It just won't get there. So that's disparity. Second one is- Unless their
0: parents have money.
1: Unless your parents have money or they're happy enough to win a lottery, right? Um, So to your point though, that that increases the disparity across those who don't. So if I graduate from college, I have very little, um, I, I, I have massive debt. I don't have any savings. I probably have a job that doesn't pay anywhere near what you and I got paid when we started. And um, I I probably graduated with a degree that didn't prepare me very well for what the work was going to be. And I faced a world where my works like to be taken away sometime next little while. That's kind of a dire circumstance for that kid. If I'm right. Yeah, so you're
0: identifying, Blair, a new kind of aristocracy, one that ironically has come out of our capitalist democracy.
1: Yes, exactly. The irony is that we've essentially created a system that was really, really good at generating wealth and generally sharing that wealth for a while, but we've created a massive disparity over the last few years.
0: And Second this, uh, is- let me just point out for, for our for our listeners um, here, this observation is not coming from some Marxist uh, think tank at an obscure university. <laughs> it's coming from PricewaterhouseCoopers. So we've got to trust these guys. These are the backbones of capitalism. These These are the... This is the plumbing of capitalism, and they're telling us that the uh, the toilet is broken.
1: Yeah, and I was dean of a business school, by the way, who taught most of the stuff that created the problems we have in the first place. So, so yes, I, touche. I'm 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 responsible in two cases, right? Um, but there are some other there are other other challenges. One of them is that technology, because it's everywhere, it's ubiquitous. When it causes a problem, it's a population level problem. So the industrial system creates uh, a world we can't live in because it's too hot and there's a, there's water way more water than we want and technology in the sense of what we're doing today actually has some pretty dark sides so um then the the other piece is we don't so, have so the just, just to be clear we
0: said so the first point is inequality the yes second uh, is the impact of, of of tech and big tech and this is a theme that i've written about over yeah. the last 15 years and we've we've talked about numerous times on the show particularly yep. The, the, the impact of social media and these new monopolies from Silicon Valley, the Googles and the Facebooks and the Apples and the Amazons from the West yes. Coast, right?
1: There, there's two other pieces to it that are beyond that, though. One of them is that actually it's, it's affecting us as individuals in ways we didn't expect. So the, the fastest growing cause of death for 16-year-old males is suicide. Right, girls are cutting way more than they used to. Um, self-harming way more than they used to, and and actually for part of our intellectual processing, we're getting dumber. Right, so there's some there's some individual level consequences that are that are beyond the ones you just described. But yes, unintended consequences of technology, and then I think our industrial system. We never knew that it was going to create um, too much carbon in the atmosphere. Um, We didn't design for that. It has, since now we have to deal with the unintended consequence. So that's pretty massive. In in both cases, we have about 10 years. The third one... We're on our
0: way, just, I I, I love to quote Bob Dylan, we're on our way then to the Black Horse Tavern, right?
1: Yes, we are on our way to the Black Horse Tavern, exactly. Um, And we don't have the leaders we need to deal with it, and the institutions aren't up to the task. Those are the other two problems.
0: Which, are, which aren't minor either. Speak, speak, speak briefly on these.
1: Yeah, so uh, the institutional piece essentially, so think about the reaction people have to things like uh, the police force is not making me feel safe. The education system is not creating me in the way I need to be created to have the job I want. The tax system feels unsafe, unfair. Um, the political system seems like it's not working. Each of those systems was designed for the world I described happening over the last 70 years in the world we're in now, we have to completely rethink the institutions without giving away the things that were good about them in the first place. Uh, this all was, of by, by the way, new, one, of our,
0: one of the other people we had on the show, Eric Lonergan, describes this as a new system of, of what he calls angrionomics.
1: Yes, exactly, exactly. And, and what you'll notice is the heat's going up every time. So if you go back to Wall Street sit-ins, it was kind of hot. You go to Me Too, it got really hot. I mean, you think about what happened in the Middle East; got really, really hot. You think about Black Lives Matter; it's hotter, right? And so it's boiling. Part of the 10, 10 year argument is there's a limit to people's patience, and and it's running up.
0: So it's hell. Armageddon Street is 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 more than warm; it's hot. Uh, uh,
1: it, the, the 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 backside of this is a pretty unhappy place, right? So think about. Um, world too hot to live in, uh, most coastal cities underwater for climate. You think about, um, do we really want our 16-year-old males committing suicide as their primary cause of death? Um, do we really want our institutions not to function? Do we not want to trust them? You, you take all that and put it together. You know, that leads to some outcomes that we don't want to have. It usually, The usual result of that kind of thing is revolution or war, right? and And, and, uh,
0: uh, and, and we've talked about that Quite a lot on this show. So, you have these four kind of verticals, I guess inequality, the disruption of technology, polarization, and the disappearance of trust. And then you have in your book a, a meta theme, which is demographics, age, yeah. which, which is compounding all these vertical crises. What's the role of age and demographics? So, so it-
1: It it acts as an accelerant, right? And so think about the world as split into two groups, young countries, old countries, right? Oldest country in the world is Germany. Actually, oldest country in the world is Monaco, but but serious economy is Germany, right? Um, The problem in Northern Europe is that they're going to run out of the capacity to support the people who are retired and underfunded because there won't be enough people paying in the tax system. And you think about the kids I described graduating from school, they're already burdened. Right. And if I'm a middle aged person with a job and I lose a job, I don't have the ability to pay. So it's the dependency we have on fewer and fewer taxpayers supporting the whole system. In, in places like Africa, where there's 28 countries with median age under 20, the challenge there is we need a massive amount of education and new jobs. And I don't see where they're coming from. Right. And so they accelerate the problem. It also is the case that Africa is where the droughts going to occur. And Northern Europe is going to have some serious water challenges, right? So it, it, it gets accelerated by age. It's interesting,
0: uh, your observation
1: about age.
0: Thinking about Dylan now, he's an old man, of course, but he was once young and he was the, the voice of the youth rebellion. What is or who is that voice of the youthful rebellion today? Uh, is it the, 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 the stars on YouTube? Is it Twitter people? Um, or is youth culture so fragmented and perhaps inarticulate that, it, that there aren't any Dylans or Beatles or even Sex Pistols to articulate the rage?
1: So one of the issues that we're describing in polarization is the world's fracturing, right? So to uh, popular media, so to um, social relationships. And so I don't think there is a single force in the world the same way there was when you and I grew up. Uh, It's a a world where actually there's multiple forces. And that's one of the challenges, which is how do you get a single voice? Well, there isn't one really, right? Um, And and I think the question is how do we pull it together? Because think about where do we get the energy from? It's gonna have to bring disparate views um, to bear and somehow accommodate those disparate views. So your question's right to the heart of the polarization problem.
0: Right, so it's 10 minutes. I'm not 10 minutes, that was a ten years. Year slip. 10 years to midnight. Uh, we've got these huge problems. Uh, your job at PwC is less pointing out those problems, more fixing them. Blair, focus on the fix. What can realistically be done over the next 10 years to address these problems, to make sure that we don't have another French or Russian or Chinese revolution or just mass chaos, anarchy?
1: Yeah, I mean, war, revolution are two obvious outcomes if we don't get it done, right? So um, there's there's a, a few things we have to do. One of them is we have to take a few of the problems that are huge and deal with them massively and quickly in a way like we haven't seen before. One of the nice things about COVID is sort of taught us how to do that, right? Um, That we learned we could shut economies down. We learned we could change our behavior to interact like this overnight, right? So we have to put more-
0: we certainly haven't done it in the United States.
1: (laughs) We have to put it to more constructive uses, right? Um, And, uh, um, but but we have to do some things massively and quickly. And the two I would suggest are climate and and the creation of uh, small business and jobs, right? Um, and we have to do that globally. Um, take the lessons of the Marshall Plan in some ways and apply them with 21st century methods and, and do a few things massively fast. The other thing we have to do is take the way we thought about the world that created so much success for 70 years and recalibrate it to the world we're in today. So it's not single measures like GDP and shareholder value. It's actually more complicated, more inclusive, more interdependent measures. Our institutions need to sort of remember why they were there, but then reinvent themselves for the world we find ourselves in and I think to me the most radical of the ideas really is we need to go back to the place that matters to us most and take care of it first so we've got to take care of local circumstances, build them, make them successful because there's too many villages, cities, towns that are broken that all of us care about and and it doesn't it doesn't work to sort of put. Uh, bad things together, right? um, So imagine you're in the Olympics, there's only one swimmer. Not very interesting. So we need the local swim meets to be good again.
0: What uh, examples do you have in your book or in, uh, in your business life, Blair, to, to speak of how the local can, can begin to fix this stuff?
1: Yeah, uh, there's a couple of examples of the book. The one is sort of if I take my own city I live in. So Durham, I moved to as a, an assistant professor, young assistant professor. And it was, um, there was one bar, there was one hotel, the downtown was hollowed out. We had a fantastic uh, black entrepreneurial community, but we actually paved over that community with a new highway. We just, we just, we just buried it under a highway. And so it was a terrible place to live. Um, and then three guys said, let's look at um, what what the problems are. So we had we were based on tobacco, a bunch of empty warehouses where drug deals were being done. And we had a not all that good baseball team and say, those are the things Durham's known for. Let's build around that and build a city that thrived. And, and it turned out it's a fantastically successful city. Right? Um, you can see that happening all over the world where people are taking what seemed like the problem of a place and turning it into an asset and saying, so I'm going to create a thriving local economy um, that's self-renewing. You saw one in Armenia. You see them in, in India in South Africa.
0: Brad Feld, the Boulder-based venture capitalist, was on the show last week. Yeah. And he spoke about how uh, uh, venture capital can be, central in reinventing local uh, communities. Yes. What is the role in, in your view from a PwC, a bigger company's point of view of people like Feld and, and, and venture capital in investing in local communities?
1: So I think capital broadly has to be focused on building dynamic local strength as one of its core features, including venture capital. The nice thing about venture capital is that we need a we need a bunch of new things to get started, right? Do you think about what COVID hurt the worst? It was small business. We need to get small business to come back again. The other thing about venture capital it tends to be forward looking and thinking about the things that we need on a forward looking basis. And so I think he's exactly right. We want um, we want people like the former CEO of Cisco come back and help West Virginia, right? Um, you need to see that again and again and again. One of the jobs of a, of a large organization like ours is to support that activity as much as we can.
0: What about the role of politics? It's all very well talking about the local and guys like um, Brad Feld are obviously doing incredible work. But doesn't this need a political movement? Every time the system's broken, it only ultimately gets fixed from, if not from the top, certainly with the help of a centralized political movement, party, leader, do we need new political parties or ideologies?
1: So I think we need politicians who recognize the issues we're grappling with in a kind of more integrated systemic manner, um, who can rethink it properly. And I think it's more of a public private piece, It turns out one of the challenges is governments are gonna be pretty broke for a while. They borrowed a lot of money (laughs) Um, And actually, a lot of the expertise doesn't sit within the institution of government. So it's gonna be more public-private, I think, than it has been historically, where we draw on the wealth of the private side and some of the innovation, but we have political support and focus. So interesting issue is how do you get a federal government to say one of our jobs is to help local communities thrive? That's kind of a tough argument for them to buy, but it's gotta be a premise to accept. How do we get them to say, The institutions you're running aren't working very well. Um, It's forcing people. It's like asking a phrase, asking the turkeys to ask for Christmas or Thanksgiving. It doesn't work all that well.
0: Yeah. And perhaps in that sense, America is in a stronger position than other countries because of its federal, uh, its its decentralized structure. Um, Blair, we had the Distinguished British uh, investor capitalist Ronnie Cohen on the show. Uh, He has a new book out arguing that we need to rethink the very metrics of capitalism, that the idea of traditional profit and loss doesn't make sense anymore. And companies need to be evaluated not only for the money they make, but the damage they do to the environment and to social infrastructure. Uh, how, um, How seriously do you take the radical arguments of people like Cohen and how um how realistic are they in given the realities of today's capitalist system?
1: So I don't think some of those arguments are all that radical, right? And actually, um, uh, just before Covid took the primary uh, um air out of the system, right, with our thinking, there was a massive movement among investor community to worry about sustainability and, um, and the fairness of the system. They were really pushing hard. And so I think you were saying a move where people were saying, we can't just look at single measures like profit or loss or shareholder value, because the problem is it, in the end, it'll come back to bite us, right? And so I think it's not all that radical. I think it's actually the way we have to move forward. Now, as a dean of a business school, we're kind of responsible for doing that. We taught shareholder value for 50 years, and we have to do a little bit of undoing that and saying, actually, sustainable business is as important as uh, how business is doing in any single quarter. Um, So I I think it's not all that radical at all, and uh, essential, really.
0: So Blair, not only your book, 10 Minutes to Midnight, uh, which is essential reading for those of us who want to avoid going to the Black Horse Tavern on Armageddon Street, <laughs> you can help us avoid it by rethinking the role of business school. You're in North Carolina at yes. the moment, in, um, uh, like everybody else, stuck at home, uh, where your business school is. In addition to your book, what else should people be reading to, to help us um, uh, avoid getting to midnight? so that we don't end up in the Black Horse Tavern?
1: So I'd actually recommend one book in particular, which is Drawdown. Um, Because I think that what it does is illustrate that every part of life is causing the climate consequence. And if you understand that thesis, then the rest of what I say makes sense, that essentially you've got to cut across all of it. Drawdown,
0: so, sorry uh, to interrupt. Uh, and who is the author of Drawdown?
1: Oh, I'm blanking on his name. I apologize. Um, uh, brilliant guy out in Berkeley, actually a colleague near you. Um, and uh, and, and his, his, what he did was gather all the most of the effective climate thinkers in the world to sort of say, what are the hundred things we can do to actually reverse it from farming to transportation to how we build um to uh, how we build how we make things how we communicate with each other how we take vacations how we educate ourselves and and essentially say here are 100 things we can do and it's across the entire tapestry of what we do that um is important uh, incredibly important piece of work
0: you've been listening to keynote hosted by me andrew key make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at Lithub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.